welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Well, if you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So far in our study of Genesis, we have been confronted with several biblical claims. First, the scriptures claim that before time existed, God was. No other thing existed with time before God. Sorry, with God before time. Nothing existed with God before time. Because every created thing, visible or invisible, exists within time. So when Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it means that God alone steps onto the scene and creates time itself along with every other thing bound by time, whether visible or invisible. The scriptures also claim that God exists within relationship prior to creation, prior to creation, prior to time. We spent much time looking at the overwhelming evidence within the Old and New Testament that God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit prior to the creation of anything and everything. New Testament writers went to extreme lengths to show that the Son of God is one with the Father, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit were one before the beginning. The Son is not an ordinary man. He's not an angel. And He is most certainly not less than the Father. We saw that the Son shares the same glory with the Father and the Spirit and that all creation will bow down to this God, Father, Son, and Spirit and worship them as God. The Scriptures also claim that God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, made everything within six days. We looked a little at the debate over the age of the earth last week, but the main point to take from those scriptural claims, from that scriptural claim, is that a good God formed and filled a good world by the power of His Word, according to order and design. In the creation account, it is impossible to deny that God was in control that He had a purpose in mind, that His designs were made according to order, and that everything that was made was good. The creation account describes the very opposite of chaos, chance, disorder, genetic errors, broken code, death, decay, suffering, or any form of evil. Instead, what we find in chapter 1 is that a good God creates a good world. And then in our study today, we will see that this good God has created a good world so that God can bring man into perfect relationship with Him. Let's read Genesis 1 verses 26 through 31 together, keeping in mind that we are still in day six and that God has just created the animals that live on the dry land. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And it was so. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And ask Him to bless us as we read His Word and seek the truth that comes from Him. Heavenly Father, I thank You again for this congregation, this gathering that's here today. Lord, I thank You for each one who has invested so much time and effort into the believers, to this congregation who are here, to this church. I thank You that as the church... We are the called out ones, the ones who have been called out of the world and unto God. Thank you for your great grace and mercy. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that it would pierce into every heart today. None of us have arrived. None of us have been glorified. We all desperately need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and to shape us and to mold us into the image of your Son because we have not arrived yet. We are not yet in the image of Christ fully and perfectly. And I pray that this morning this, we would all take one more step in looking more like your Son. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 26 contains a phrase that is not found anywhere else in the creation account. God says, let us make man. This phrase, ser- this phrase serves as a break in the repetition of the days of creation. And it also raises a glaring question. The question, who is God speaking to? Was it the an- angelic beings? We know from the book of Job that angels were witnesses to at least parts of the creation because we read that they were rejoicing and praising God as the foundations of the earth were laid. I argued that angels were created sometime after verse 1 and sometime before the sun and the moon and the stars came into being because Job says that, or God says and is recorded in Job, God's words, that the angels were witnesses as the foundations of the earth were laid, that they were rejoicing. But there is one serious problem with the idea that God is speaking to angels in this verse. Scripture repeatedly states that only God 
created the world. And this phrase clearly states, let us make man. Angels are never given the honor of joining God as creator. There have also been other less compelling suggestions made by those who are trying to imagine what was going on in Moses' mind as he wrote and read what the Spirit of God inspired through his pen. And it seems like this is just one of those passages that Israelite scholars would have found difficult to explain. They would have been left scratching their heads. Why did God say, let us make man? But as we saw two weeks ago, the New Testament repeatedly gives a clear answer to this question. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were working as one in creation. The Father willed all things into existence. The Son is the Word that was sent to accomplish the Father's will. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, filled with compassion and care, and breathed life into that which was made. So when God says, let us make man, we are supposed to stop and take note of the special attention and care that is about to be expressed on this part of creation. God is changing his words to emphasize at least the written part. This written part is being emphasized that this is special. This is different than anything else that I've made thus far. These words express that this is the main event. This is the reason why so much thought and effort has been put into creating this good world. This is the crowning act of creation. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, let us make man in our image, in our image after our likeness. We are given two very important words here. First, we're given the word image, which is the Hebrew word shalem, which could also be translated model form, representation, and within context in the Old Testament is often translated idol when used to condemn the worship of false gods or lifeless statues. Second, we're given the word likeness, which is the Hebrew word demut. This word could also be translated model, shape, or pattern. These two words are not describing two different things. Instead, likeness gives more clarity to the word image. It's repeating the same idea by using slightly different words. But even with both of these words and the rest of Scripture for context, it is difficult, it is still difficult to pin down the exact meaning of being made in the image of God. Because the Scriptures just don't clearly and plainly come out and says and say God made you in his image and this is exactly what that means it's just it's just not there in scripture so there have been many opinions about how to define being made in the image of God but there does seem to be broad agreement on at least a few things which I will summarize here for you first being made in God's image impacted every portion of mankind's being Though man's mind and heart are, are obviously or are most obviously godlike, though that is true, I believe it is also true that the unblemished image of God would have most certainly been something you could see and recognize as God's image bearers expanded into all the earth. It is something you could see and recognize originally. 
Second, being made in God's image is what elevates mankind above every other created thing on earth. We are not beasts of the field. The fish, birds, and land creatures were created as good. They were good. But to say that mankind is just another animal is to spit on the image of God. Also, being made in the image of God or in God's image makes us those whom God loves. Those whom God loves like no other created thing. God loves mankind before he creates us, shown by his special attention. God loves mankind in the way he creates us, in his own image. And God continues to love mankind because we bear his image. And finally, being made in God's image gives mankind the ability to enter into personal relationship with God. The beasts of the field, the sun, moon, and stars, the fish and the birds, even the mountains, oceans, and trees, they all glorify God and praise God's name. But none of them are ever called God's children. None of them are offered entrance into the family of God. None of them were given an eternal soul, and none of them have a longing for heaven placed in their heart. None of them have a God-sized hole in their heart that will never fully be satisfied by anything other than perfect relationship with God. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes these words to the Israelites so that they will taste and see that the Lord is good and so that they will seek after this good God and the perfect, all-satisfying relationship that only He offers. The creation account then goes on to describe the honor and responsibility that God has placed upon those who are made in his image. God declares that man will be made in his image, and then he declares it man's responsibility and honor to represent God on earth. Let's look again at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and... Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. To have dominion is to rule, to reign, or to exercise authority. And it is clear from this passage that Adam and Eve are to exercise the image of God by reigning over all the earth. Here we have the first image of a king and queen over earth. Just because someone is a king or queen doesn't mean that they are in rebellion to God, abuse their subjects, or live in wanton luxury. Because this very first king and queen were in the image of God without any blemish in their appearance or characters. Because of that, they both, both, and they both were perfectly designed by God to work together as they reigned over the earth. So this was actually God's design that they reign over the earth. Kings and queens are not necessarily a curse on people or on the earth specifically. We will get into Adam and Eve's story in more detail in Genesis chapter 3. But for now, I want to point out two important things from this portion of Scripture. First, God makes both Adam and Eve 
in his image. We'll see in chapter 2 that Eve is taken from Adam's body, but this passage clearly states that both Adam and Eve bear the image of God. When verse 26 uses the word man, it represents the idea of the first man and all that come from him, which could also be stated instead of man, it could be stated mankind. Verse 26 itself points to this. It first says, let us make man in our image. And then it says, and let them have dominion. It clarifies itself. Also, verse 27, which emphasizes the share image of God in both Adam and Eve. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Male and female, he created them. Male and female equal mankind. They are both made in the image of God. Second thing I want to emphasize is that God gives both man and woman the honor and responsibility to reign over all the earth. He gives both of them this honor and responsibility. Again, we will see the specific roles and intent of God for this special human relationship in chapter 2. But for now, recognize that the glorious plan of God was for Adam and Eve to walk hand in hand as they ruled over creation together. Yes, men and women are designed by God to be different. They are. Yes, God did appoint Adam to headship and made Eve to be his helpmate. He did. Yes, this is a beautiful blueprint and it will bring great joy to your relationship and to your entire home, including your children. But as we distinguish roles within marriage, we must never lose sight of the foundational truth found in these verses that God designed men and women to walk hand in hand as beings of intelligence and equal worth who together rule over the earth. Neither men nor women should ever be treated as if they are little more than animals or beasts of the field. Never should we treat one another that way. Moving on to verse 27, we see a Hebrew poem which describes the pinnacle of God's creation. This is not vain repetition. Instead, this poem emphasizes the radical nature of the Creator God investing His likeness into creatures formed out of the dirt. Verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Kent Hughes, a theologian, helps us grasp the significance of this poem. He says this, This is the high point towards which God's creativity from the opening verse is directed. So consider this, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars, to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light-years below the plain of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up 
the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness even a star's birth. In all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child once was not, now as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. And when the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall still live. End quote. Kent Hughes' words direct our thoughts to verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blessed the man and the woman with the ability to have babies, who also... Babies who also have the image of God. And babies are not just new human bodies with instinctive behaviors. Babies are the miraculous combination of a physical body with an eternal soul. God blessed the animals and gave them the ability to have offspring with instinctive behaviors, but only mankind was blessed with the ability to bring an eternal soul into the world. A good God has created a good world and has filled it with good creatures, all for the glory of His name and for the good of His children, humanity. He has given... He has them, then given man and woman the honor and responsibility to reign over all the earth, to exercise the image of God by ruling over creation as a replica of himself. And then God gives man and woman the responsibility and privilege to create more images of him so that the whole earth would be filled with the image of God. God says in verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. After this, God then provides for creation's every need. In verses 29 through 30, He says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green, green plant for food. And it was so. Man and the creatures lacked nothing. Their every need was met. Even man's need to exercise the image of God within them through dominion had been provided for. And mankind would be able to spend each day in perfect relationship with God, with other people, and with the rest of creation as they spread 
the image of God across the entire earth for the glory, to the glory of God. It is at this point that we read verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God declares that it is very good. Very good. We studied last week how God God saw each one of the pieces of the puzzle as good. And how He put together the border of the puzzle. And then started filling in all the pieces He said the light was good, the land and seas were good, the plants were good, the sun, moon, and stars were good, the fish, birds, and land creatures were all good. But when God picks up the final piece of the puzzle, His most precious piece, and places it in the very center of the puzzle, He then steps back and looks at everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. The completed creation with His image bearers ruling over it in perfect relationship, this is very good in the sight of God. But let's stop for a moment and all affirm and testify that we have never known this type of perfect relationship with God one another, or the creation. We've never known it. In weeks to come, we will study the specifics of how the fall of man happened, but for now, we must realize the chaos and disorder that man's rebellion in every generation has unleashed on this world. We are now, we, humanity, are now born as rebels to God automatically inclined to reject God and abuse the image of God in ourselves and in others. You don't have to teach a child to lie, cheat, steal, or even hate. Instead, every waking moment for Christian parents seems to be invested in shepherding our children to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Because we know That the person we allow them to be as a child will only be amplified when they become an adult. The human race as a whole has also proven to be terrible at ruling over creation. Factories dump toxic waste into rivers. Oceans have become little more than big trash bins. Forests are stripped bare and left as blots on the landscape. And there is so much pollution being pumped out in big cities that in some places the air can barely be breathed. Not only is humanity poisoning the world, the creation is also under the curse of God as a consequence of man's rebellions. We brought on the curse on this entire world. So many creatures seem to be at war with man. Think about how scary it is for most of us, me included, to get in the ocean past our waist. Or to go for a walk through through Kruger National Park. We fear being eaten by the animals we're supposed to have dominion over. 
Plant life isn't much better. Most farmers throughout history have broken their backs for a lifetime just to keep food on the table. Earthquakes split the land. Volcanic eruptions vaporize entire towns. And flooding kills thousands of people each year, just to name a few things. These things are bad enough. But I haven't even touched on how mankind has abused one another over the past 6,000 years. When each generation rebels against God, it sets off a fresh chain of events that results in the further destruction of the world around us and of the people around us who are made in the image of God. Think about some ways human beings are destroying one another today. Men and women reject the image of God in one another and treat one another more like objects to be desired which may be enjoyable for a season, but then can be kicked to the curb as if they become inconvenient or if an upgrade becomes available. Men and women reject the image of God in children by ruling their homes with angry, harsh, bitter words and sometimes violence. Men and women reject the image of God in babies still in the womb calling them a fetus, believing the lie that an abortion is no different than clipping a toenail or trimming your hair. The World Health Organization estimates that in the past 22 days, and only the first three weeks of this year, that 2,600,000 babies have been murdered before they were able to take their first breath. And that number will most likely reach 73 million babies before the end of this year. The rebellion of man has broken the perfect relationship between God, man, and his creation. And the chaos and disorder that have come from this rebellion is so vast and destruction that none of us can even begin to fathom it. How can God let humanity go on breathing for one more moment? Why hasn't he sent the sun crashing into this earth long ago, vaporizing all of us in the heat of a thousand atomic explosions? I cannot fully fathom it. But the reason we still live and breathe is because God says He loves those whom He has made in His image, humanity, and it is good in His sight to eternally save a remnant from each generation before the day of wrath comes. Hear these words from Jesus in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world He's talking about broken, unfaithful, murderous humanity, all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the son, should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son with a sword in his hand the first time. He just did not. He chose not to, even though it would have been good and right for him to do so if he had desired it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise the Lord. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe in the Son is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We were all made in the image of God because we were all supposed to fill this earth with His love, His care, His beauty, His order, His rule. But we have all individually blown it. On our own, we all miserably failed to rule this earth as he would have. And we all stood condemned because of our rebellion. But this is why the Father sends the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to take on human flesh and to be the perfect image bearer in our place. Jesus perfectly spoke God's words, did God's works, and accomplished humanity's purpose. Jesus was the perfect image bearer. He was without spot or blemish. But what did he do? What did he do with all of his success? What did he do after he had accomplished all righteousness? Did he turn to all of us and say, See, that wasn't so hard. I could do it. Why couldn't all of you? Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Instead, Jesus lays down his own righteous life as a sin offering for God. So that Jesus could save those who were promised to him before the foundations of the world were laid. Think on Jesus' words recorded in John 10. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He's talking about his own. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's saying it's not just the Jews. It's not just this fold. Not just the, the, the remnant in this fold. I must bring them also. Sorry. And I have. Sorry. It's not. Um, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. He's saying it's not just the Jews, it's also the rest of humanity, the remnant in the rest of humanity. And they will listen to my voice. He's talking about the Gentiles, those outside Israel. So then there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's saying that there's no longer just the Jews. He is now taking the rest of humanity, that remnant that will believe in him, and he is taking them and making one flock And he says, there will be one shepherd over this flock. He's saying, I will be its shepherd of this flock. 
Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Because Jesus laid down his life and paid our debts, he can say, whoever believes in me is not condemned. He has lived the righteous life we failed to live. He was the perfect image bearer. And he has paid the debt we deserve to pay. Death, the wrath of God. Because of this, humanity can receive peace with God and eternal life. But we, must also, but we must also be careful to hear Jesus' warning in John chapter 3. He goes on, he says this, Whoever believes in me is not condemned, praise the Lord. But whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this is the question for rebellious humanity. Those who have marred the image of God in them. This is the question for every person in this room today. Whether you've never heard of him before. Or if you, whether you've been hearing his name since birth. This is the question for us. What are you going to do with Jesus? He claims to be one with God. Do you worship him as God? He claims that his blood, which was spilled on the cross, is so perfect and divine that it can wash the vilest clean. Have you been washed? He claims to be the only door that leads to eternal life in the Father. Have you entered into that door? He says you cannot love the sins of this world and love him. Am I forsaking my sin and pursuing his righteousness daily? He commands the redeemed to pick up their cross and follow Him? Are we daily putting pride and selfishness to death because our heart's desire is to dwell with Him forever? Paul tells us the joyful news that everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Romans 10 verse 11. Those who believe in Jesus follow Him, and look with eagerness for His appearing, they have already begun the process of being restored to the perfect, into perfect relationship with God. Did you realize that the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process called sanctification, that this is the process of being restored to the image of God? You do not have to wait for heaven to be His image bearer. To represent him before creation, to be his ambassadors to fallen humanity, telling them about the one who is restoring the image of God in you, telling them about the God who has given you eternal life with him and will one day fully restore you to perfect relationship with God, others, and creation in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 gives us this picture of the restored and exalted relationship that Christians long for. John is shown this vision by God. He says in verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is what we long for. This is why we walk with him now, so that we can begin the journey of this process of being restored fully to the image of God. And one day he has promised that all those who long for his appearing, that he will do it and that he will be our God and we will be his sons and daughters. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we long for that day. Help us, Lord, as we wait patiently yet eagerly. Would you help us not to grow weary in well-doing? Lord, we know that you have not forgotten us. You've promised and you've told us that you are not waiting for the return because you don't care about us. But instead, you tarry because you want to see every soul that is yours come to the knowledge of God, forgiveness, and restoration, and then you will bring an end to this destruction that we have wrought in this world. Lord, I thank you that you did not just wipe us out. I thank you for your mercy and grace. And I thank you for Jesus who did come as the perfect image bearer, took our place and fulfilled all righteousness and then credited to it to those, to those people's account who call on him in faith. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.